What's wrong with you people? I'm serious. I mean, this is what's wrong with the Christian church today. We don't know who God is, and we don't know who we are. Welcome to the Faith Over Fiat podcast, conversations at the intersection of faith and Bitcoin. We believe in the power of freedom, financially and spiritually. Hey everybody, this is Adam, also known as Hoddleberry, and today I'm with Stephen Lupka, who is the managing director of Swan Private, correct? Yeah. Yep, that is that is right. Yeah, so if you want to go to swanbitcoin.com slash Hoddleberry, you'll get... <laughs> I've already onboarded like 40 people. So uh, so I'm, I'm really hitting that every day. I'm getting little tiny bits of Bitcoin that I didn't actually pay for, but Swan's been a great... Um, this. This episode is not sponsored by Swan, but I love Swan, so I'll just give them a, a, a shout out. Good job, Corey, with your team. Um, and today we're going to be talking a little bit about the idea of non-dualism. Is that right? Sure. Yeah. So, Stephen, maybe you could give us a little bit of your background, uh, your worldview, how you view reality, and we'll uh, we'll dive into that. I want you to explain it to me like a five-year-old, because I grew up in a Judeo-Christian uh Western culture, like probably most of the people who have been or will be listening to this podcast. And so explain um, what your view is, where it comes from and uh, how you maybe how you came to it. Yeah. So I think, uh, you know, maybe for a lot of people listening, you know me from obviously I'm very involved in the in the Bitcoin space. I run private client for Swan. Um, But before I got into Bitcoin, this was a huge passion of mine. So I was very oriented towards, let's call it some of these existential questions. Those were like incredibly alive for me. I, um, I, I think one of the core beliefs uh, for me that has been and is, is essentially this notion that um, reality or um, these kind of existential, spiritual, religious themes it, it is knowable, right? Like it's not this, this unknown that can never be experienced or is only accessible uh, when you die. Um, there, there's actually an undertaking. There's something to be done. It's not just, you know, in, in this view, cross your fingers and, and, you know, wait for, you know, essentially something, something which you can't experience while alive. And this is common, obviously, in, in the East, right? I think in the entire Eastern framework from Buddhism to Hinduism to Advaita Vedanta, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a practice element, right? There's a people are, you're, you're doing something, you're meditating, you're engaged in uh, essentially achieving, the words get tricky here, but I would say a, a transformation of your psychological state, right? So there, there is an internal shift of some kind that is being pursued. Um, and that always felt for whatever reason, uh, real to me and was a kind of an orienting or, um, orienting principle. And there's parallels for this, I think on the Judeo Christian side of the fence. Uh, maybe we'll talk about it later. There's a guy, Meister Eckhart, who I really like, uh, who, who said things that I, you know, I would argue are very similar to what Advaita Vedanta says. Um, so well, hold this, on. Let me, before, before we keep on going, let me let me just let's define some terms here. So, Advaita, uh, Advaita Vedanta uh, is is somewhat of a. It's not necessarily Hindu, but it is related to Hinduism. Like, so can you just 
Like, get, yeah. get, like orient us a little bit right there. Yeah, yeah. Good, good question. So it's a branch. It would be considered a branch of uh, of, of Vedic philosophy, which is you know essentially what is what has come to be called Hinduism. One of the interesting things about Hinduism is it really didn't exist. Um, it, it, a lot of things got smashed together and labeled as Hinduism. There were all these other kind of sub branches of uh, of Indian philosophy. Um, but essentially, so Advaita Vedanta is brought forth. Uh, there's this guy Shankara, who is basically considered the 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 founder or the originator of the school of thought. And it is essentially it is essentially a a, a philosophy and a, and a and a view that um, everything is fundamentally unified, and um, that means that the world. The act of seeing the world and the seer or the, the self or the person are actually one thing. On the surface, they appear distinct. They appear separated. They appear to have these kind of fundamental barriers. But um, what Advaita would argue is that they are, in essence, uh, made of one thing. And coming to know that kind of uh, fundamental ontological primary, uh, that material that everything is made of is kind of the pursuit. It's the undertaking. You want to, you want to directly within your own experience, come to know that substance of which all, all arises. And that maybe sounds a little like scientific, like I'm talking about, like there's a type of particle, right? But that's not, that's not really it. There is a kind of an incredible devotional aspect to it. It's, it's not, it's not that that material or that substance or that source is this like objective, uh, just like a material, right? Like we'd say a rock or a particle or something. It is in a sense, divinity. It is in a sense, the, the totality. And, um, that is the pursuit. So, so let me just try to, to understand this from a, a Western kind of perspective. So instead of there being like the physical and the spiritual or like the the normal or the vulgar and the the divine there it like everything is in your view one kind of one thing yes absolutely so there there's no fundamental separation between those things um there's a Ramana Maharishi who was a, a, a well-regarded Indian sage in the early 1900s. He had a quote that said, the world is an illusion. Only God is real. The world is God. Uh, and it was this three-part breakdown that actually you can see mimicked in some Zen statements and in other statements. Um, but it's essentially arguing that we start from this initial position where we look at the world and we see this separate world full of all these isolated forms. Uh, you know, the, the, the window I'm looking out, that's the separate object that's apart from me, the bookshelf behind you. And I'm me and I'm in here looking out, everything's divided. And that's the starting point. And then it essentially, that statement supposes a, a middle stage where you essentially come to see that, oh, actually that, 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 you know, you, you could call it an illusion. I actually don't really like the word. Well, you could call this an illusion. Um, some people in this kind of field of philosophy will say stuff like the world is illusion or it's Maya. 
And I actually, I actually really disagree with that. And so, so did actually uh, Shankara, interestingly enough. But uh, from this point of view, there's essentially a secondary stage where it's like, oh, this world, this separation, this separateness, this disconnectedness is essentially not real. Only, only the totality, only, only the divine, only God, only awareness, only this primary thing, this substance is real. But then there's a final statement where he says, the, so the world is illusion, only God is real. The world is God. So it is essentially saying that actually in, in, in the final movement of that, you come to see, you come to experience that not only is it not vulgar, is it not growths, is it not higher and lower, spiritual and unspiritual, but it, it is actually all of that stuff, all of that matter, all of that, it's actually made of the divine. Like that is the substance of it. You call it God, call it awareness, call it whatever, but that is actually in a very fundamental way, that's what it is. Okay. So, <clears throat> so there are some things in there that to a Western mind would uh, resonate in some sense, but so, but a, a major difference between your, the view that you're uh, espousing and Western belief is, is the difference between the creation and the creator. Like, so in like the Judeo-Christian ethic, for instance, the creator is here and is outside space and time and has created matter and substance and has even created, you know, in the in the Bible, for instance, uh, heavens and the earth. And so the creator's here and the 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 creation is here and the creator, um, both in Islamic thought and in Jewish thought and Christian thought has stepped into creation at various times. But he himself is separate from the created world, which is. Uh, ex essentially the exact opposite of, and that's why, you know, you, the, the phrase that you had used before was uh, non-dualism. Yeah. So yeah. it's interesting. I, you know, I can see that contradiction. I can also see a kind of a way you resolve it though. Um, there's a, there's a phrase, I think it's panentheanism and it's saying the world is God, but God is also beyond the world. So there is the world, the world is God and God is actually more than the world. You can't define God just by the world. Um, and so this concept that something can both be like the world can be made of God or made of awareness, uh, made of consciousness. Um, but God in of itself, like what that, what, what is actually beyond the world. So it is both of it and God totally transcends it. Um, and so if, if, if kind of the heart of the distinction, and I'm not saying this is even the line you're trying to draw, but if we wanted to say the heart of the distinction there is essentially that, um, well, you know, the sum of the entire world of the entire array of manifest things of people of objects that doesn't add up to the divine that doesn't add up to God. You can't just like put it together and like, Oh yeah, God is just all of it. Right. Like God is actually something that is beyond that is transcendent. Um, when I think that, I think that actually aligns. So, right. So that is, that is what, uh, if we were to take an Advaita lens, uh, that is true. And so that would, you know, they would express that essentially as, uh, you know, of, of Brahman, of the absolute. There is absolute reality. And that totally transcends um, the world in, it, in its essence, even though that is what the world is made of. Okay. So, so from a Christian perspective, again, uh, just 
bringing it back to my what I know. And so you have God who would be um, because God is God would be omniscient and know everything and understand everything and have all power to know every, every the slightest detail of every molecule that ever existed. Um, how how would in your view um, God if if matter is part of the divine? Like, for instance, so, so I don't share this view as you, obviously. So how would I, as part of the divine, not understand that I am part of the divine? Like, how how did that separation, yeah. you know, or how did that incongruence happen in a a non-believer yeah. or, or a pen or, you know, I, I you know, wh- whatever part of matter that doesn't necessarily understand that it is part of the divine? Yeah, that's an awesome question. So, and that is kind of the crux of the whole undertaking. In another, you know, in a Buddhist lens, you'd be asking, well, why do you, so, you know, they would kind of have a, a thing where they'd say, well, everyone is already uh, enlightened or everyone is already aware. There'd be this thing and and they're commenting to that that forms the basis of you. It's an inherent quality. Yet, there's meditation practices, there's monasteries, there's this whole tradition, there's this undertaking because you're not aware of that. Like you don't know that. You can say that, um, you know, the absolute is what everything is made of. That's what matter fundamentally is. That's what we fundamentally are. That's what experience fundamentally is. Um, But like you said, almost nobody walking around knows that, right? It's not clear. It's not apparent. And so how is that? If that's what you are, how do you not know? And the answer to that would be that there is essentially a abstract conceptual overlay. When we say myself, when we relate to ourselves, who, who, what is, what is, what is myself? Uh, what, what is the I, um, through the process of just being born and growing up and human conditioning, we come to relate to basically a assortment, a, a combination of thoughts, feelings, worldviews, beliefs, um, and this sort of mental abstract complex. It's obviously usually pretty neurotic. It's uh, you know it, it, it has certain qualities, and we basically attribute that as ourself. That that's who I am. That that's what myself is. Myself is my ideas about myself. Um, it's, it, you know, the key thing there, it's, it's difficult to describe that because it really is this incredibly, it's a, it's an overlay. So if you look at one of the things that I think is so valuable in this worldview is there's this call to look at direct experience. So it's saying like, all right, in this moment, I'm, I'm seeing the microphone. I am seeing out my window. I'm hearing the sound of my voice. There is this direct experience that all of us have. And, you know, if you, if you investigate that, you know, if you look at that, if you pay attention to experience itself, you know, you don't find that self-concept there. When, when you're looking at that, you can't, you can't actually find that sort of traditional self, right? It, it only arises when you're thinking about yourself or you're, you're having, you know, some sort of, some sort of abstraction. And essentially what it's saying is that we become incredibly focused on that. We become incredibly fixated on that abstract concept of self. And we basically miss it. We're just, we're just not aware of it. It's there. We don't see it. Uh, and the entire undertaking is to become aware of that. Okay. Um, all right. So I want to move a little bit from the, the 
theoretical more to the practical. Yeah. So uh, one thing I wanted to point out, though, is uh, as I was doing some research for this episode, I was looking up um, Advaita uh, Vedanta um, imagery and uh, just in- interesting things about it. And I found on Wikipedia that the swan is apparently <laughs> closely related. And you working for swan, I thought was really funny. And I had no idea. You 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 shared this with me a few minutes before we started recording, and I had a I I thought that was the funniest thing. I had no idea. I'd never I'd never seen that. Um, and, and you know, and part of it is like I I wouldn't I I want to say this for the audience. I don't necessarily like consider myself like oh yeah I am a practitioner of this philosophy or I am a like that's my kind of religion in a sense. I just you know, for without having a two hour discussion about exactly what it is we're talking about, I, I, that maps the closest. I think I relate and they do a good job of describing reality as I see it, but, um, just, just for the listeners. And, but that was amazing that, you know, that the swan symbol is part of that universe. Well, you're talking about the universe being, you know, uh, kind of part of everything. I think that (laughs) there's some connectedness there. Um, so, um, in in Bitcoin specifically, so we're moving this from just the religious studies kind of discussion to a Bitcoin discussion. So in Bitcoin, we do talk a lot about the fact that Bitcoin is good money because it is moral, ethical money, and it and it does things that the current system is failing to do. Because um, if if everything was fine in the monetary world, there would really be no reason for us to do this, and this would just be another project, uh, a technological project. That would be interesting, you know, like the creation of JavaScript. You know, it, it, it wouldn't really f- affect our lives in a, in a meaningful way, or at least in a cultish type of way, the way many of us kind of view it. And so um, maybe just maybe we can discuss a little bit about your view of, of how, where we get the concept of good and evil from and how maybe Bitcoin f- brings money into the good and removes the evil from the monetary system. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, from, from this view, if, if, we, if we look at the world and say, you know, really, this is unified. This is a unified whole. Um, it's divine. It's complete. It's whole. Um, it's not meaning just... The, meaning the world and the universe, right? Yeah, the world and the universe experience, like... Um, it, you know, it's, it's not this, we're, we're not a, you know, from this view, I mean, it's fundamentally non-materialist. And what I mean by non-materialist is it does not assume that consciousness is produced by the brain. So if we don't assume that consciousness is a brain thing, obviously the brain has a role in consciousness. And this is, this is going into idealism, which I also really enjoy, but obviously the brain, if you manipulate the brain, you manipulate sense experience, but um, I'll, I'll, I'll save that. We can go down the rabbit hole if you want to, but this, this view is, is fundamentally non-materialist. It's saying that awareness, the, the experiencing, the act by which we are seeing and hearing is actually this like irreducible primary of the world. And in that, um, reality existence, this is this irreducible whole. It's this, it's this arising. And in that, um, while each of us has a distinct self and, you know, I'm separate. I'm I'm different than you. There's also like a fundamental like unitary nature to it. And in that, you know, ethical frameworks, right? Like they're not inherent to that view, but it becomes like self-evident, right? Like if I am 
I, this kind of materialist separation, like if we take that sort of set of metaphysics and it is a set of metaphysics, it's, you know, that's one thing that I, I, I think people don't realize is atheism and materialism. Those are metaphysical assumptions. Like you can't like science does not prove them. Right. Um, right. there, there is a, very, a huge unanswered question of what is consciousness? Where does consciousness come from? But you assume these sort of very separate random ideologies where, Everything's just matter clashing around without a purpose. It's just particles bumping into each other. We're just brains in a body and it's all meaningless and you die and it's over, right? Well, that bleeds into your ethics. That bleeds into like what you're willing to do or say or how you're going to conduct yourself in the world, right? And conversely, you know, if, if your experience of life is of a fundamental interconnectedness, I, I mean, the concepts of, of harm and suffering kind of get really, really fundamentally altered. So reducing human suffering is just an intrinsic good. It is an intrinsic, uh, it's good because it's good and that's irreducible, right? And so Bitcoin, uh, you know, having a more functional monetary system, having a form of money that um, reduces capital misallocation, that promotes human abundance, that, you know protects people from overreach from the state, from seizure. I mean, those are all just fundamental goods. They promote, they, they decrease human suffering. They promote human flourishing. And even if this world is this arising, just this, this, this indescribable uh, arising, then, well, still, it, it's kind of like, even if it's all a dream, if you're going to dream it for the next hundred years and there's other people in the dream with you, why not reduce suffering, right? Like, why, why, would, you, why would you increase suffering? So um, to, to put the words in your mouth, then, and I think probably everybody who listens to this podcast will agree that suffering is suffering's bad. I mean, humans agree to that. And also that Bitcoin reduces, Bitcoin specifically reduces human suffering. And so therefore, under your, under your circumstance, under your worldview would be a, a positive thing. Yeah, it, it's really it's really as simple as that. As human suffering is is self evidently bad, and human flourishing is self evidently good, uh, and and Bitcoin promotes flourishing and reduces suffering. And the you know the primary mechanism. I think people say that a lot. I want to say why. Um, I think one of the primary reasons it does that. If we obviously there's seizure, there's theft, there's debasement, there's those things. Um, but I think, you know, outside of those cases where like Bitcoin is literally protecting you from having your wealth directly stolen, Bitcoin, um, the current fiat system and the current monetary system, it just promotes capital misallocation. Whenever you have a system where you are inherently manipulating the monetary base, right? I, I view, so price conveys information. Alan mm -hmm. Farrington has a great thing where he says that actually, because people will talk about price is information, the economy is a computer, it computes the information of price. Alan has a great thing where he says price is actually the, the like the destruction of information down to only the relevant variables. And so mm -hmm. price combines everything that matters from all the actors and all the economic conditions into this one variable that allows people to make decisions. And it reflects the realities of capital. It reflects the realities of uh, resources, of labor that, you know, in some way get reflected by price. And then when you have a, a, 
a, a you know a spurious monetary authority or you have a central bank that decides to just do monetary intervention because they're trying to influence something you distort the price of capital and that reduces the efficiency of the system it misallocates things you have the cantillon effect it prioritizes certain people so all of those you know the net effect is human suffering more human suffering than there would be otherwise so really you're you're kind of you're the the, the mashup of like Hinduism and like Mises and human action. <laughs> what you're well, you know, about. yeah. I mean, we're we're all left with our own kind of uh, metaphysics in a sense, right? Like, like science does not give us metaphysics. Anyone that says it does is 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 full of it. There is no science cannot tell you what reality is at this, you know, at least at this, at this point, it's not there. Who knows about the future, but um, you know, and that's where materialism comes from. So just that, no, it's just consciousness is in the brain and this is all just random crap created by the big bang and it's smashed together for long enough. And look, now you're self-aware, right? Like there's a huge leap there. And Right. So, so I, I would, I would push back. Well, I would agree with that. And I would say if, if the world is purely material and there is no metaphysical ultimate reality and there is no. That uh, is rem- metaphysics though. Like to say the, I'm just like, I'll let you go. But to say the world is purely material, you're making a statement about reality that is unprovable. And right. And exactly. And, and the, I think one of the things that just from a, on a practical level that pushes me away from that viewpoint is that in that case, anything that happens in, in reality or in the world um, is acceptable and is not inherently bad in and of itself. And people will people will um, frequently appeal to natural law or just kind of like or, or the, some of the ideas that you talked about, like what maximizes human flourishing, what minimizes human suffering. and but ultimately, in the final analysis, after everything is done, th- what will happen is the world and the universe will die a slow heat death and molecules will be spread out. And then and then we'll all be there'll be no consciousness at all. And so what happens in the fiat system, what happens in Bitcoin really ultimately doesn't matter because we're all going to die anyway. Um, and, and so but I, I but kind of going back to to your worldview, I guess my question would be. Like, isn't fiat part of and and human suffering and people doing bad things? Isn't that part of the divine under your worldview? And how how does that happen? Like, how can that happen? And how can that be inherently bad? Or how can how can theft by fiat be bad if the fiat system and the humans perpetuating it are part of the divine? Yeah, I guess yeah, that's, a no, that's an awesome question. Um, so and, and I want to comment to one thing you said earlier. Um, yeah, that materialist worldview, um, you can get into these mental gymnastics about utilitarianism and like, but, but it's, it's, it's impossible to really have any sort of meaningful ethical or moral, you can create it. I mean, I'm not going to say there aren't guys out there that like justify whatever, but it, you have, you have fundamentally denied the world, a concept of sacredness. There is no sacredness. It is impossible for something to be inherently, inherently meaningful, inherently sacred. Um, and I think, you know, different religions approach that concept in different ways. You know, I, I, you would, 
I'm sure you would you would agree with the sacredness of things from a Christian lens, and I would agree with the sacredness of things from just this like. I mean, it's literally all God. It's all the divine. It's all the totality. Right, sure. We're looking at the inside of God from God's eyes. Um, and so, okay. So, what about what about what about evil? What about the the costs of fiab? What about the harms? Right? How can how can that be? And so, it's important to distinguish that there are differences, right, between the absolute and the relative. And um, we're when we're def- Everything on the most absolute fundamental way is this divine wholeness, you know, from this view, right? That that's what it is. And fiat and human suffering and all these things are no less that in the same way that it's 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 a lot like saying, you know, when you look at a television screen, right? It can display anything on the screen. It can display great things. It can display horrible things. But ultimately, the images you're seeing, they're the screen, right? They're nothing but the screen. No matter what it shows on the screen, it's still made of the screen. And, you know, in this analogy, you know, the screen is the divine, the totality, awareness, God. Um, And so why are there these, why are there these, why are there these sufferings, right? And that's a... That's a big question, right? I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be so presumptuous that like I have got the one answer for that. I'll tell you how I think of it. Sure. Um, so and so first of all, you know, I'll use a little bit of a metaphor, right? Like um, if you're if you're if you're at the sun, if you're if you're the sun, if you're at the sun, right? Everything is light. Everything it's just light. There's no the sun doesn't set if you're standing on the sun, right? The sun is light is constant. It's everywhere. You're standing on the earth. There's light and darkness. There are these contrasts, these apparent dualities. That that is that is that is what happens when you have a world, when you have a material world, when you have existence. Um, I would argue, and this is, um, you know, this is essentially. I have no ability to, you know, I, I can't back this up. I can't rationalize this, but um, essentially. The, the the variety of existence, the the duality, the you know the good and the bad, the suffering and the pleasure, right? I I think that in order for there to be, uh, what is, a, is essentially the appearance of a separate entity, a person, let's say, for for me an individual to exist, for you an individual to exist, that involves an inherent duality, right? Because now there is this. It's not just all irreducibly unified on all levels with the divine, right? You have this apparent separateness and underneath it, you have this, this absolute wholeness. And in the process of doing it, you, you, you know, there must be this, this kind of a apparent duality that's created and, and B, then there is this process that if we assume the point of life or the undertaking of a human is essentially to come to know this, it's to return to, to, that, to that knowledge, that insight, to return to the divine, to return to wholeness. I think in many ways, you know, the, the suffering and the pain is what brings us there. There's countless stories across every religion, across every story of like, well, what brought you? What brought you to faith? What brought you to God? Well, often it was suffering, right? Like right. often it was suffering. Most people, they don't just like, wow, I just made a million dollars. I'm an atheist. I now believe in God, right? right. You know, right. It, it is often 
pain and questioning, trials and tribulations. And so I think, you know, if if we and you you might agree with this, right? If if we kind of just say the point of the world is like to know God, that's the highest thing, to know the absolute. Um, then suffering plays its part. Right. Yes. Okay. So you're, we're, we are, <laughs> we're definitely speaking like two totally different languages, but I think there are some commonalities in, in, um, and at least our, our view of the world. Um, and, uh, I'm, I'm actually going to be interviewing an atheist in an upcoming episode, well-known Bitcoin atheist. And so I'm interested in hearing his perspective on, on some of these things. Um, but, it, it does seem like there the, the the commonalities are that there is uh, there is the divine there is um, an ultimate purpose or at least in some kind of uh, ultimate good and uh, so uh, kind of piggybacking what you were saying like you know why there is good and why there is evil like so what is then the arc of human history or the, or the history of the universe is it toward the unification and the oneness and the wholeness, you know, or maybe wholeness is the was the wrong phrase in your view. Like, is it is it a homeostasis where it's neutral, or is it are we moving? Are we like winnowing out the bad and getting to just just the good? Yeah. How do you see things in that in that way? Yeah. So I don't know the answer to that question, um, but if I were to wager how I see it. Um, I think there's an inherently evolutionary quality to reality, right? So from, from, from this perspective, um, everything exists, right? In, in a sense, the, it if it comes from the divine, if it comes from the totality, then within the divine is some sort of impulse, is some sort of uh, desire for that to exist, or otherwise it wouldn't exist. Like nothing, nothing can exist that like the whole doesn't desire to right. exist, right? It's just, it's a contradiction in this, in this way. Um, and, and so in that, you know, life is very evolutionary from both just organisms to persons, right? We evolve over the course of our life. We learn and we grow and we develop. And, um, and, and I think the process of, uh, you know, coming to know, let's just say like this, this, this insight, this reality, right? That's also an ongoing process. It's not, you know, in, in, it, it doesn't cease. It doesn't stop. Um, and so I see the world as containing this, inhe this inherently evolutionary drive where it is infinitely, infinitely growing and evolving in the mind of the divine, right? Like it is, it is not homeo, it's, it's not at a, it's not in a stasis. And I would be inclined to say that, and I don't know the answer to this, but I also don't think that all of these, you know, the problem of human suffering is never solved. Like the issue of human suffering is not to solve human suffering, like the tension is what is so vital about life. I, I, I've been thinking about this a lot in different ways, right? Not just related to these kind of more existential or spiritual themes. Um, there are so many tensions. There's so many paradoxes to human existence. And people inherently, they want to solve them one way or the other. They want to say, this is this and this is that. Um, but so often, uh, I, I think the purpose of these tensions is not to be solved. The purpose is for them to remain as tensions. 
And so I think human suffering is, is part of that, right? It doesn't mean we shouldn't minimize it. It doesn't mean we should cause unnecessary human suffering, but there's a level of it that's just inherent to, to life. It's just so baked into it. And I think that's a, I mean, I think that's a, that's an asset, right? I think that's something that while we don't enjoy, right? If, you know, if, if, if world, if the world was just all good all the time, um, it wouldn't be the world. We wouldn't be people. We wouldn't be humans. And I, you know, I very much believe that, um, we're meant to be what we are or we wouldn't be it. I would, here's another question. Um, shifting gears completely. What do you think happens after you die? So if we're saying that, um, everything is unified and 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 the source of all of this is uh essentially a, awareness in a sense it is this this seeing this conscious awareness and it's that's not produced by a brain and it's not even like awareness of the divine awareness is the divine um then that awareness doesn't cease it can't cease it's primary so that that kind of fundamental source of where awareness, where consciousness, where seeing, where perception comes from, uh, precedes matter. It is before the world. It is not the world exists and then awareness comes. Um, therefore, the, the death of a body, the death of the world, the heat death of the universe, none of these things have any bearing on um, the existence of, uh, of, of, of awareness. So, you know, the, the more unanswerable question is like, what happens to your personal self? Right. I don't know. Um, what happens to Steven? What happens to those things? You know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't need, I don't even want to speculate on that. I don't think it's obviously it's not clear. I don't want to speculate on it, but I think what is fundamentally important from, from this view is that um, like that which is observing in our experience, the capacity by which you're seeing the screen, I'm seeing the screen, that is this irreducible primary of reality. And that, that can't die. That is eternal. That is, that is, that is beyond, beyond arising and falling, beyond death and life. So, okay, so let's, let's move back again to Bitcoin specifically. Um, shifting gears yet again, I have found that bi the Bitcoin community does function and operate in many ways like a religious community. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> a lot, a lot. I mean, there's there are different factions, there are different prophets and different priests and rituals um, that exist all throughout the Bitcoin community. Um, ha have you have you experienced? Bitcoin as a religious community? And what do you think that, like, what type of similarities or differences can you ascertain yeah. from your view of the world and, and your worldview and the Bitcoin kind of ecosystem worldview? Yeah. yeah. So I think humans are wired, they're hardwired to worship, right? I, I think humans are fundamentally religious in, in an inextricable way. I think Americans in particular are religious about everything they do. Uh, and everyone, everyone all over the world, not specifically Americans, but um, 
we do atheism in a religious way. You talk to a lot of atheists, they're incredibly religious. So when I say religious here, I'm not saying they believe in a certain religion. We're religious about diet. We're religious about exercise. We're religious about politics. We're religious about atheism, right? Sports teams. Yeah. It, it's everything. Like to say, and, and And so much of uh, you know, people think we're in this like post theological society. And I look at so many debates in the world. They're all theological debates. Like there's, there's so many things that are just like, you, you can't get away from it. Right. So, and yes, of course, like religion and the, the overtones of religion and of, of worship and of constructing these sort of things. It's so hardwired into everything. You can find it in the scientific community. You can find it in the political community. And so, yes, you can find it in the Bitcoin community. You can find it in the Ethereum community. You can find it like they construct it different. It has different flavors. It has different values and virtues and meanings, different rituals, different priests. But it, it's it, everything's that. Everything's that. So, I mean, I agree. Yes, the Bitcoin Bitcoin has has tones of that, right? And, and it has other ways and there's other ways of engaging that are like more or less, you know, there's obviously like very rational dialogues going on. There's very, not that I'm in any way creating like a dichotomy between serious and unserious, between like religious and like non-religious, right? But there is, uh, you know, there's there's also like very rational inquiry. There's very, you know, level-headed, empirical conversations and stuff going on. That's there too. It's It's not in any way absent. Um, but I, I don't believe that any social movement, like if you want a social movement, if you want a group of people coming around and participating in a thing and caring about it and assigning it virtue and value, like you have a, there's a religious quality to it. It's an, you can't escape it. So here'd be, here'd be a question for you. So if you, I mean, I consider myself to be, you know, the toxic Bitcoin maximalist. Okay. So I would, I, I, I intentionally um i'm repulsed by anything that's not bitcoin sure um and 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 outright calling it a scam i used to be involved in shit coins before i became sure. a maximalist um luckily not not too far after that that happened um but there are people that believe in the goodness and the virtues of their particular pet project cryptocurrency or whatever and and they believe they're doing the Lord's work or they believe that they're benefiting society and humanity, probably somewhat earnestly, some are scammers. How, how do you, how do you, from like a, from my own perspective, my, my view of those people are either they're deceived, like they just don't, they don't have the correct information. They're actively scammers, but I, I have a, I have a category in my mind for that type of person and how they view the world, I guess, from a Christian perspective. So for instance, as a Christian, I believe that there is, there's one true religion and then there's like all the, all the false religions. That's just like, it's, that's baked into the Christian system and to the Jewish system and to the Islamic system. How, how would you view, um, how would you view divergence from what you would call like the one true Bitcoin and um, like, like, how does that, how does that kind of fill, fill in or how does your worldview fill that? Gap, yeah, I guess. So when you we're know? talking about the world, right, if we're talking about things in like relative reality as opposed to absolute reality, um, 
We have to use human values. We have to use human ethics. And those should, I think, fundamentally be derived of does this benefit people or does this harm people? Does it cause human suffering or does it, you know, ameliorate it? Does it reduce it? Right. Um, so, you know, I, I agree with you. There's two classes of people, right? There are people in the crypto world that are actively, cynically, purposefully scamming people. They're trying to just, and so there's a few classifications there. One is like literally just running like an outright, like just, uh, like just scamming, just literally like stealing. And then there's people that like, you know, create a useless governance token that's designed to extract value. Oh, it has a purpose, whatever, like, but you're still, you're just, it has no value. You're extracting value, right? And so there's kind of two, two ways there. There's, and maybe one of those people knows they're doing it. The other person doesn't, they're both extractive. Um, and then you have people that like, it's ignorance, right? Right. It's ignorance. And I'm generally a person that, um, I, I, I think ignorance is much more prolific than malice. I, I truly do. I truly do. I, I think while there is malice, there are deliberately harmful people that do not care about the impact they have. I do think ignorance dominates. And I do think a lot of people, it's, I mean, Jesus said this, they know not what they do, right? Mm. They know not what they do. Um, and that is a reality. Some people know what they do. And, you know, well, we could get into like, you know, on some level, but like, um, but a lot of people know not what they do. Uh, there's ignorance and, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, I, I think, I think there's obviously a role for education. I think there's a role for conversation. I think like, you know, it depends on who you're talking. If you're, if you're talking with ignorance, right? Like malice is something different, but, um, there's, there's a role for that. And, you know, there's and and I'm I'm Bitcoin only. I don't I don't I don't do any of the other stuff. I only participate in Bitcoin. I think that you know, uh, Bitcoin is what ma it God. It's just like even if they were able to succeed in creating some sort of like leveraged borrowing on the internet, like why does that even matter, right? Like why why does that even I don't care, right? Like Bitcoin is trying to solve a fundamental social problem, right? Um, and you know, and, and then the structures that get built around it, they just create so much opportunity for predation. They create so much opportunity for stealing and harming and like, and, 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 and you have this, you have this kind of other frame where even if we, like a lot of the things that are trying to be built, right? Like, like separate of whether or not they will be built, whether the tech works, whether like any of those questions, like a lot of the things that even if we just assume that they achieve their goal of like leverage or these trading contracts or whatever it is, I, I view a lot of those as social negatives. Like I view those as like actively detrimental to yeah. financial markets, to society. And it's not from like a freedom perspective that I think like the government should tell everybody what they can and can't do. But um, you can look at like leverage, like speculative leverage is just not good. It's not good. It is net negative, right? And and there's a huge speculative leverage machine that's been create, created. And that's that's just like massively net negative. Um, something else from Bitcoin is Venice. I've been reading that recently. Alan Farrington's book is, he has something, I think it's called like the leverage theory of markets. And it's basically that like, um, if volatility is low um, 
or there's like a like a lower risk, lower volatility, uh, where you can eke out like an additional return by applying leverage, then people will apply leverage. And by applying leverage, they will increase volatility, which will then get everybody liquidated, which then count, like, count, like uh, counteracts the impact of the, the additional return. And so he has this kind of uh, this, this uh, economist that he cites where he says, like, the optimal leverage is always one, aka no leverage, right? You know, because it, it perpetuates itself. Um, and so... You know, there's there's the level of like active scamming, stealing from people, harm. There's the level that like a lot of these projects, even if they were to work and scale and be used, I think would be so socially detrimental and would be financially detrimental. So I, you know, I I I, I don't I don't I don't find value there. Um, I don't know if that answered your question, but yeah, and no, I uh, that it does a little bit. Um, so. Yeah, that that's that's fascinating about the idea that that leverage is is bad, and that so now that you're get my wheels turning a little bit, that means like the the traditional financial system built on fiat and you know fractional reserve banking and and like creating credit out of thin air and and creating money by, via credit out of thin air, like that is actual huge detriment to Bitcoin, um, like it. it in one way, like that's the thing that we're trying to escape, but that's like almost the hammer that, that smashes Bitcoin into the ground when there's a massive bull run yeah. and then you get a massive decline because of the unwinding of that leverage, which is, I mean, that, that has got to be what's, what's happening right now. Yeah. And, and so the, the, the solution to that really is more massive adoption, more, um, it's, it's, more more weight to the price like more people being in in it and not being able to be manipulated and i guess my concern would be how do we get from here where we currently are to there yeah without the entire thing breaking or enough yeah. people being like this is a ponzi scheme and so that that's a that is a concern that i haven't really yeah like to me the main threat of bitcoin in my mind has always been central governments and central banks, like big, big governments, just like literally capping people in the head, you know, who own Bitcoin and everybody's like, I don't want to be a part of that. Or them, them trying to, you know, corrupt the system, corrupt the network by spamming it or having nodes that are untrustworthy or, or just literally just chaining the door shut of certain exchanges. Um, that's always been like the biggest threat, but, but maybe a, a even bigger threat is the, the deleveraging aspect of it. Yeah, I mean, it's just that it makes it adds these just qualities to markets that are just net negative, right? And you can almost say the same thing of like, how do we transition? You can say the same thing about the entire fiat financialized world. Like, the transition is complicated, right? I don't think this is appreciated enough, but you know, if 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 yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say perhaps maybe the answer really is the religious aspect of it, like the cultish aspect of it that that people like me are like, OK, so I, I have bought Bitcoin at fifteen hundred dollars. I have bought Bitcoin at sixty eight thousand dollars and I've been buying all the way down. I bought all the way up. And and I mean, to be honest, with probably my average price right now, I am definitely under underwater. Like, I mean, I'm not Bitcoin rich. I have a full time job. Um, so. There has to be this f almost 
this group of people who are such fanatics and religious and like are willing to take the bullet for everybody else that we are literally just, you've seen that meme where like this guy is protecting this sleeping yeah, baby yeah, yeah, yeah. and all these <laughs> things are hitting him in the back. Like, that's what it feels like to be, it's like, I, I'm not, I'm not selling or I'll put it this way. I'm I, cause I do sell Bitcoin when I need the money yeah. to pay yeah. for my expenses. But like I'm I'm purposefully subjecting myself to pain because I want the system to work and not even for myself because I want to get rich and buy, you know, Lambo. It's it's because I want the system to actually work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it requires right. Like it, these things get moved forward by like, quote unquote, true believers. Right. Like that's yep. that's how it works. Right. I, and I think that's. It's, that's broadly applicable. Um, I think the history of humanity, right, is 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 written by a very small number of people. Um, you know who, you know, how many normal physicists that you've never heard of add up to Einstein's impact? Right, a thousand, right. ten thousand, a hundred thousand, like most of them, except for you know the other the other really notable people, right? The history of humanity is one that is that is that is driven forward by, you know, a very small number of people. And I think that's true for all movements, all technologies. Like there are these very, very passionate believers and whatever it is that drive it forward against like essentially like irrational in a sense, in like an economic sense. Like they're willing to do it at cost to themselves. Like it's not just like, yeah, maybe they think they're ultimately going to benefit. Like, you know, that's fine. But they're they're willing to suffer some pain to bring this thing forward that they believe in. So I think that's essential for Bitcoin, right? Like you need people that are not just treating it as a speculative asset that aren't just like leverage trading it that are buying it and holding it. And those people are long Bitcoin. Um, but it's just this, it's this broader, we, we live in a financialized world. We live in a crazy financialized, um, world where, um, like even just the, the, the basics of the financial system, I think need to be really reevaluated. Uh, and this includes stuff like, leverage this includes stuff like the nature of lending of i'm i'm reading this book recently called um the price of time it's about interest just like the concept of interest interest rates by uh mm, forget his name um but there's this really interesting part um where the author talks about this economist uh i can't it's like Ba bag hot b-a-g-e-h-o-t and he was in the 1800s and he basically comes up with the idea of like the modern idea of like uh, a bank right like lending like lender of last resort right like the central bank comes in they bail everything out like that's the social good uh and and so ben bernanke when they're when they're interviewing him qe all these things he references this guy more than anybody else this 18 you know this 19th century economist um, who had this theory of like how the central bank should work, but even in doing so, they completely throw out like even the basics of what, what this guy thought, which I'm not saying I even agree with in its original form, but this really caught my attention. The three things he says is that the, the, the bank, and I don't even think it was a central bank. It was like a national bank back then, but, um, should lend for a short time against high quality collateral at a high interest rate. And you compare that to what they're doing now, and it's for basically an infinite duration against no collateral for basically free, 
right? So even the justification for modern central banking that comes from this guy, they essentially invert the whole thing and they introduce all of this risk, right? They introduce all of this moral hazard. And we've learned all of this before. Like the other thing I'm taking away from this book is, you know, in the 1700s and the 1800s in France and England, you had this very like dynamic period where people were debating, well, what if we made the money cheaper? What if we just kept lowering the interest rates and lending more and more money? Would we get rich? Would we like make more abundance? And right. um, no, the answer was no. It completely oh. failed. It completely they tried to do it. They tried lowering and lowering the interest rate, lending more and more money. And it didn't work, right? Like we have a historical example. These ideas, they've been tried before. And yet we come into this modern central banking era and it's just taken as gospel that um, low interest rates, lots of lending, infinite duration, lender of last resort bailouts. And, it, you know, it's it just it's all fundamentally questionable. Um, and, you know, we agree on that. We're both in Bitcoin. Like, I'm not saying anything. Right. Yeah. And it's it's funny that <clears throat> it's funny you should say that because. Um, like le- lending is, in my opinion, it's a, it's almost a religious act. And I mean, in a, at least for instance, in the Bible, it's, it's referenced as like something that you do in order to help people who are, um, are, are, they have come upon some kind of misfortune. Yeah. And it's not really for the purpose specifically of making a lot of money. Like that's not the goal of it. Um, actually one the, in the Psalms, uh, one of the, one of the Psalms says, you know, who can, who can ascend to the Lord, to the house of the Lord. And it's someone who doesn't take a bribe, who's always honest in everything he does and who, who lends to his own hurt or pledges to his own hurt. And and for, for Bitcoiners who are holding to their own detriment, that's like almost exactly what we're doing. And the opposite of what central banks are doing, there's, there's no, there's no hurt. I mean, they're like they're transferring they're, risk. They're not sharing it. They are they are saying, here, you get the risk, I get the no risk, right? As opposed to to sharing it. Exactly. And and um it's easy to be generous with other people's money. That's I mean, that's a, a yeah. maxim that we've heard. And I think that's one of the things that where you got a lot of backlash from the recent announcement to completely or eliminate ten thousand dollars worth of student loans, federal student loans, because the people that heard about that who weren't part of the people benefited from that. Sure. I talked to several blue collar workers and they said they've never heard as many on the job site, as many people fly into like expletive laden tirades because of that, because they, they, those people realize what just happened. It's like, they've been working hard and they didn't get a bailout or maybe someone got bailouts from, from stimulus packages or maybe PPP loans sure. or whatever. Uh, and they benefited in that way. But they, they saw that and they were like that the loans that were created are ended up being they're going to be paid back by them. And they and they instinctively knew that even just blue collar people had never been to college. I thought, I thought that was super fascinating. And I wonder what type of political ramifications that's going to have, you know, come November. Yeah. And so, I you know, I think this is the real this is the real critique. Right. Um, there's there's various critiques of the student loan bailout. Um, the one that I think is really substantial is that if you under there's two there's two there's two critiques that I've said. The first is that 
the loans are the reason it's so expensive, right? We, we provided all of this free, not free, but like uh, unquestioned capital to students. And so the colleges just jack up the prices because they can charge more. So this isn't solving anything. The problem isn't that like everybody has too much debt. It's that like this, this loan-based system of education has made the cost of college spiral into the stratosphere. So that's critique one, is that it really doesn't do much. Um, but so somebody hearing that from the other side would argue, well, it may not fix it and we need to fix it, but why not help the people that are like, you know, hurting? Um, and, and the, the, the pushback to that, that I think really holds water is, um, it, it's, it's, it's just the, the, the dynamic of money creation. It's the dynamic of like, where does that come from? Where does that value come from? And because of the dollar's role as a global reserve currency, um, the U S, uh, you know, essentially they sold a bunch of treasuries to fund the loans and they might, they cancel like the payments they're receiving, but they still need to pay those interest payments to the people that bought the bonds to fund the loans. And they need to pay the principal back at the end of the term. And so money needs to be created eventually, uh, as well as like the short term impact of the loans will be inflationary as people have more cash to put in the economy that gets metered out over time. But um, but there's still there's still this fundamental quality of um, they're going to have to come up with money somewhere to pay the bondholders who funded the student loans. And where does that money come from? It comes from debasement, you know, in one way or another. And so you have people all over the world in a very real way, to some degree, Nigerian farmers and farmers in South America and poor people around the world are being negatively financially impacted to pay for the student loan debt of like generally wealthy, educated Americans. And that's morally, that's so morally questionable, right? And it's because of the dynamic of the, the role of the US dollar. And I think that's, I mean, it's just a very legitimate reason to oppose this. Yeah, well, what, what, I think what you're saying, is, let alone people is, in America, obviously, right? It yeah. impacts people in America. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying like, but it, it impacts. I'm trying to say not just people in America, but actually people all over the world because of their reliance on the dollar are being negatively impacted by this. Well, you know what's funny is we we've been we've allowed ourselves like since as Americans like and we have the the hegemony on on financial power because of the status reserve status of the the federally federal reserve note uh because of that like we can do whatever we want as, because we have the biggest military and because it's it's difficult to unseat us from that that central place of power and it's like you can just offload all that student debt onto other people and so um yeah maybe maybe the people that should really be up in arms are, are the the poor farmers who are negatively impacted financially or the the factory workers in China who well, um well they they have no power right they have no power um the people that need to be up in arms are the people that have some measure of power right like we need people that control and command some measure of influence in American society to just, I mean, to push back against all kinds of things is the way I see it, right? Like we need to, you know, and and, and we're aligned, right? Like because the uh, the the reserve currency status, the role of the dollar, uh, you know, it, it's why our factory jobs were shipped overseas. It's 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 why our industrial base was hollowed out. It's partly partially responsible for, you know, 
wage inequality and things like these, these come from in many ways, like very real economic conditions where we don't have an, have an industrial base in America anymore. And I think that's changing. Um, but what, so, so I say like, we're aligned, like in, in the way that we in, in America need to push back against this system. Uh, it not just would benefit us, but it also benefits everyone around the world who is negatively impacted by this. Uh, recently finished Atlas Shrugged and I realized I took a, and in case, you know, spoiler alert, like all the, all the industrialists in the, in the book kind of, you know, they, they, they're holding the world on their shoulders and they shrug and they, they kind of disappear. And I'm realizing that that is the way, what you're talking about with, with, you know, what a 10,000 physicists don't equal one Einstein. There are precious few people on this planet who are actually shouldering the heaviest load of keeping things going. And, you know, we were talking about uh, inflation and, and those things are, are negative to an economy, uh, malinvestment and all that type of thing. But it's it's actually like just by the sheer grace of God that technology continues to move forward, even as fiat tries to push us backwards. Yeah. <laughs> it's like somehow, despite all the theft, Despite all the graft, despite all the misallocation of capital, despite all this inflationary, you know, and negativity that go that goes along with it, somehow we have managed to to scratch our way out of you know pre-industrial, you know, doing things by hand, two hundred years ago, to indoor plumbing, electric lights, you know, rock the internal combustion engine, and like satellite-based Bitcoin nodes. Like, how, I don't even know how that's possible, considering all the theft that's been going on. Yeah, it's. Yeah. So a few things there. Um, yeah, I really believe humans are an asymmetric species. We're a fundamentally uh, <laughs> like inequality is the base state. And I don't mean like how much money someone has. I mean, like I am never going to be as good at basketball as LeBron James. Right. I'm never going to be the physicist that Einstein uh, was. Um, we're not like distribution of ability is, is anything but equal. Uh, in fact, it's very asymmetric and the, the people who have, uh, whatever ability, we don't even have to get into like what, what it is, but, um, there are people who have the capacity to, and, and historically have make these huge impacts on the world. And most of human history and most of the progress of, uh, of, 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 of our, countries of our species like they result from the contributions of a precious few people and i don't mean to say this in any way to like diminish the impact of just all the ordinary hard-working people who keep everything going like that is equally essential right but it's a difference like you have sustaining and progressing right and they're two different things yeah. And, and, you know, we, we all help sustain the world and sustaining the world is essential for having a world, for progressing a world. But the people that drive forward, that drive it forward are usually a precious few. It's very asymmetric. It's very unequal. Um, and that's just a reality. That's just a reality. Like we can say whatever we want about equality and various things, but, um, we rely on the contributions of those people. And in many ways, I see America as a bet on that. I think America was a bet 
on the asymmetric few. That is really what what freedom kind of is on a systematic level if you kind of remove it from the human experience, which I'm not saying like you really should do. But like if you do, you realize that freedom removes restrictions from the few, the, the mavericks, these exceptional from Einstein's, from these people that make these huge outsized contributions, a society that maximizes freedom and some of these American values, like they cultivate and self-actualization, they cultivate an environment where maybe, you know, statistically we produce twice as many Einstein's, twice as many, you know, exceptional contributors because we have these cultural norms, we have these values where um, individualism is prized. Um, there's a flip side to that. I, I, I do believe in that like self-actualization and a lot of these norms, uh, a lot of these values, they lead a lot of people astray too, right? They do like a lot of people, there's these, I, I think kind of criticizing um, maybe people that are adjacent to some of the stuff I was talking about in the beginning of the episode that people have heard. There's all these spiritual spiritual types and hippies and non-dual. There's kind of like a whole community there. I don't know if you've come in contact with it, but it's where this like this notion of like you create your own reality emerged from this like very like everything's subjective. Everything is like you create. I, and I think that's total bullshit. Um but it is that that is a consequence, I think, of our like very maximizing self-actualization, very maximizing uh, individual freedom. I think I think in, in many ways, like it, it did result in some of those norms that leads a lot of people astray, that people get very lost. Um, and so we, we run the counterbalance of that verse, like creating more exceptional few. So I don't know what you think about that, but yeah. So, so I would, I would totally agree with what you're saying. So like some of the things that make my, my opinion, um, exceptional, like American exceptionalism and individualism and, and all these different types of things that, that, that tend toward producing, um, just amazing technology and amazing progress in, in society and things like that. They also produce negative, negative things. Yeah. So. Okay. So for instance, um, my, like one of the, my, the tenets of, of the Christian religion, but I don't think it's, it's very well, very well stated t today. It has stated by some people is, is the idea of what the Bible calls the dominion mandate. So the idea that God gave Adam the role, Adam and Eve, the role to take dominion over the earth, to be fruitful, multiply, and to subdue the earth, to basically shape the world after the mind of God. So whatever was bad and negative in the world or whatever wasn't perfect and complete to move it toward that trajectory and into that, that way. And then sin entered the world, things got really bad. And then it got even more difficult to, to complete the dominion mandate, you know, the, the, the thorns and the thistles and the pain in childbirth and all these type of things that are in, in Genesis two of the Bible or two and three. Um, so, but like, but yet somehow we're still, like able to kind of to, to do these, to do these things. But the, the negative aspect of that is, okay, so I'm, I'm doing my work. I'm doing the best that I can. I'm, I'm innovating. I'm, I'm doing whatever, but then the, the tendency is to then forget about other people. It's just like, it's me centered and me focused yeah. and then not other focused. And so maybe you can agree with this from a, from your worldview, but like for, for a Christian to, to not care for their fellow man who is, a uh, son or daughter of God, 
and then maybe in your worldview, part of the divine, for you to not do that would be bad, would be negative, be sinful, because you are not, even though you're doing good, positive things for the universe, you are not um, adequately caring for the, the part of the universe that's also important, that that's not the productive aspect of, of the universe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so that's very complex, right? There's, there's so many, so much nuance and, you know, kind of uh, exceptions there. Kind of, if I, just to kind of repeat what you said, there is, um, somebody can be doing essentially progress, let's just say progressing civilization on one side, but they're also harming others or not caring for others. Maybe that's a spectrum, like not caring at one side is like the minimum and then like actively harming at the other side. Um, and that, you know, I, we, well, you need to do both of those things. And I mean, I would agree. I mean, I think that's a, that's a functional, that's a much more functional ideology, right? Like you need to, you need to care for the people around you. Um, and I also believe like, I, I really place a lot of value and this is just me personally, like, um, you need to give yourself like you need to you need to you need to pour yourself into your life. Um, yeah. you, you need to create you need to benefit the world. Um, and this is actually so I, I maybe to tie this back into some of our conversation we were having before this. There is this great quote. This comes out of uh, Zen. Um, before I had studied Zen for 30 years, I saw mountains as mountains and rivers as rivers. When I arrived at a more intimate knowledge, I came to the point where I saw that mountains are not mountains and rivers are not rivers. But now that I have got its very substance, I am at rest. For it's just that I see mountains once again as mountains and rivers once again as rivers. And this is kind of, it, it's in many ways kind of a, a similar repetition of I had said before of like, the world is unreal. Only God is real. God is the world. It's this three part. There's there's mountains and rivers. There's no mountains and rivers. And then they appear again. And it is this, uh, you know, in, in this um, when, when you're looking at this process of like experiential understanding, you, you have that, you know, I've said, I said this earlier, but there's this starting point of just fragmented separateness. And then this realization that, you know, only only the absolute exists. And then there's actually this other, other stage where um, that absolute almost pours itself back into the world and like mm. exists in this transcendent way. And this, I actually like, I, I don't, I don't, I don't mean any offense to anything. Cause I know there's very different interpretations, but metaphorically, I feel like the story of Jesus does this. Like there is this there is this transcendence and then this return, this sacrificing back into the world. And that, that, that the end part of what, the, and it, you know, I know that might not be like immediately apparent to listeners, but that there's no mountains. Now there's mountains again. The, the, the no mountains is only the absolute is real. And then the now I see them now that I'm at rest, I see that there are mountains and rivers. It is this way that like the absolute perspective pours itself back into ordinary human life. There was this transcendence and this return. And, um, and, and so in that, in that pouring back in and that re-engaging, we have this, uh, there's just this incredible impetus, I think, to participate in world. And, and the Buddhists have this concept of Dharma. 
everyone has a dharma and it's like a it's like a life's purpose right it's like a, you have something that you specifically are meant to do and it is virtuous and good for you to live your dharma and i i see these things as like interwoven that it's it's Really, what there is something asked of us to participate in the world, to give ourselves to the world, to pour ourselves into it. Um, and so I see that as very essential too. Uh, but you know, it, it, it obviously the part of part of that is work in the world. Another part of that is caring for the people in the around you, doing good, doing these things. Um and, and and those values, I mean, those values are incredibly important. There's many people that have talked about this, but we've just lost, I think, our contemporary secular culture. It's, it is very difficult to have values from a postmodernist materialist right. lens. It's almost, it's almost impossible, like in a real way. You can engineer them, but you need a metaphysical view, kind of, to have values. So what you're saying is, I, I think we're in my previous episode um, with Brian Harrington, um, he, we kind of touched on this from a Christian perspective, which is what had happened before was we had a, a physical view of the of the world, and then it was only a spiritual view of the world, and like the physical or the 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 earthly or the here and now is of no consequence. Yeah. And there's there's a quote. It's like he's he's of so he's so spiritual minded or so heavenly minded. He's of no earthly good. And that's kind of the way I think yes. many, many evangelicals and Christians tend to live their lives where, exactly. you know, well, what's the point? Exactly. You know, the world's going on a handbasket. What's the point? You know, God's going to rapture us all out of here. And so what's the point of of actually doing good work on the earth yeah. or building any kind of thing of lasting value? And so in my opinion, from a Western perspective, like this is, you know, personal <laughs> Satan conspiracy theory, which is Satan convinced Western Christians that this world wasn't like the money didn't really matter. Money was bad. And therefore um, it doesn't really matter. Like just put the government in charge of it. The government is, is fine to take care of it. And therefore like we have terrible monetary policy. It doesn't really matter. We're all going to be dead in the end anyway, instead of like, no, actually the money is, is, is bad. Like it's, it's evil and perpetuating the system in and of itself is a, is an abomination like just for its own sake, not even for what it does to humanity. And it does do negative things, but the act itself of how, how we're creating, creating money out of thin air and destroying wealth that in and of itself is bad. And, and Christians don't like to think about money or when they do, it's always with a negative, a negative reflex. But really, in my opinion, Christianity should move from a little bit toward what you're talking about, where you know, there's, there's the world and maybe not the world is not the point or like the, the material part is not the point, but then it really was the point all along or, yeah. you know, like it, the, the earth exactly. is the, the good, the good stuff. <laughs> it, exactly. And that's, you can see this like three part movement. Like you, you can see it everywhere. It's, and that's why, you know, I, I gave a Zen quote. I gave a quote from Raman, like it pops up in different places. This, 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 this metaphor of just when you start out, you're born, you're confused, like you're, you know, developing everything is like just what it is. It's just that this is just the table. There's nothing else. There's nothing real besides matter. And then you have some sort of, uh, you know, some sort of spiritual awakening. You have some sort of 
some sort of something where it's like, oh, like there's something more than just the world that's in front of me. There's right. God, there's the, the divine, there's the totality, there's, you know, whatever, whatever you want to, whatever you want to call that. But, and then there's this, this, this cul-de-sac that people can get caught in. There's this attractive impulse to be like, oh, well, only this matters. This, yeah. this in front of me, this no longer matters, right? This is, this is lesser and only the divine, only the totality, only the wholeness matters. And that is, um, it's a partial, that's a partial movement and it's, it's incomplete because, and that, and that's just the S like, that's the essence of this, of this realization is that it's not just that there is the divine. It's that the world is that, that this is that. And so you need to relate to the world in front of you as if it were the divine, because it is. Um, and, you know, you can come about, you know, you know, Christians might disagree with that exact framing, but I think, you know, you make a small modification, like you, you, like God loves the world, right? Like either way you care about the world. It's what's in front of you. Um, well, in, in the Christian worldview, the world comes from the mind of God. So like exactly. God is not indifferent toward the world. Exactly. I mean, the world. Right. And that's kind of saying the same thing, right? Like there's this question mark of like, well, what are we defining as God? I'm, I'm not really like a theist in that sense, but right. there is divinity and the world emerges from divinity. And you know, yes, divinity beyond the world is real, is complete, is total, is absolute. But you need to relate to the world as that divinity because that's what it is. That's what it's made from. That's what it like. There's this fundamental irreducible um, quality. Um, and, and the more you contemplate that, the more you experience that, the more that's real I, 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 I believe very strongly that it, it changes your entire orientation to the world. I, I view so much of the, the issue, the problems of modernity and the problems of our current contemporary postmodern society. Um, there's a phrase I've read of like disenchanting the world. The world has been disenchanted. Uh, mm. It has been reduced to just particles and things and meaning has been carved out of it. Um, and I just see this as, I mean, just the, the biggest tragedy, right? They're they're just such a profound tragedy. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of Ian McGilchrist. Uh, I, I recently read his work. He has a book called the master and his emissary, and he has a new book, the matter with things. He's a really interesting guy. Um, and he's kind of, uh, I think he's kind of more of like idealism, which is it's very similar to to Advaita, right? But idealism is more of like a philosophy of like, um, you know, the world is mind, right? It's it's all mind awareness, mind. That's just what everything is. Um, he has kind of a, and maybe that sort of angle, but he's a researcher. He's a psychiatrist. He did this this book on um, brain hemispheres and and you know all these things. But one of the things in, in his first book that I just read. Um, he talks about how we humans basically have two modes of knowledge, right? We have this kind of like analytical deductive, we, we, we cut everything down into parts and particles and things. And that's one mode of human knowledge. And then there's this other mode of human knowledge that is contextual, that things can only be known in their context, in their whole. Um, and you, this tracks in a lot of ways to, um, 
it's almost a direct knowing. Like there are things that we know because they are self-evident, because they are clear. Like, you know, how do you know you are aware, right? Like, well, you you look at your experience that the lights are on and it's self-evident that you're aware. You don't need an analytical process to determine that. And that's probably the most extreme example of like, how do you know you're conscious? But there's a million other examples. And that form of knowing is like thoroughly discredited, I feel like, in our current culture, that everything is just analytical reductionism. And there's no room for the whole and for directness and for immediacy and for self-evidence. Um, and yet that was the norm for most of human history. And I think we've thrown something out there. We've thrown a lot out in in the last uh you know, several hundred years. I mean, that what you were saying, like, you know, Rene Descartes talking about, um, you know, I think therefore I am like that, you know, it, it's good. It's a, it's a meme. It's a joke yeah. and stuff like that, but it, it really, that, it, so it, that it is the point of, sorry to interrupt you. That is the point of view. You asked me earlier, what stops you from knowing the totality? And I said, there is this conceptual abstraction, this overlay of self where we think we are our thoughts, like that's who we are. And that is exactly what Rene Descartes is saying there. He's saying, how do I know I exist? Because I think, right? Like that's bullshit, right? You know, you exist because you are aware, because you are conscious. That is, if you say, if you say like, I am like the sense of I am is experiential, right? If you say that phrase, it's not that you have a thought about it, right? So I, yes, that's a great example. Well, so, well, I, I mean, just to push back on what you said, I, I think, you know, I would say maybe when he says, I think, therefore I am, like he has consciousness or he is, you know, the thought or the the awareness is the the fact that he's existing. Whereas, you know, there are people who think that they may not exist. Um, or maybe they don't care if they exist or, you know, who doesn't I mean? think they exist? What, what is that? Who, what, what is that example? Um, they might, well, I, I wouldn't know, like put a label on it, but I would say like, they would say that their even existence is an illusion or mm. they might, I would say non-materialist or a person who, who is, I'm sorry, not, not a, mater, not a non-materialist, a materialist person would if you were to reduce what they're saying down to its basic yeah. essence, it would be like, it's, it's all chemicals in my brain. Understood. You know, it's, 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 it's physics, yeah. you know, it's just brain malfunction, right? It is. You, it's, I mean, stardust bumping into stardust. And so like, and I mean, in my opinion, um, there is no, there's no reason for somebody to not shoot up a school because in that type of worldview, because it really ultimately doesn't matter. Um, you know, they would say, well, relatively it does. And they would come up with, they would, from that metaphysical worldview, come up with some structure by which, okay, it, it really is bad. And we know that it's bad, but, um, but it's very abstracted. I, it's very abstracted. It's very conceptual. There's no room for immediacy. There's no room for truth and for values, right? There's this, uh, you know, it, it's, I, I'm, I'm more and more partial as time goes on to this kind of notion of like, how do you know something is good? It's self-evident. Okay. It's self-evident. So, Shut up. I think like, we can. <laughs> like, you know it's good because it's good. Stop trying to do this analytical thing. You know what's good and bad. 
And, you know, that's maybe a little bit of an extreme example, but there is this, I think, emerging view of saying like, there are things which are irreducible that like, you can't, you can't construct them out of analysis that like meaning and goodness and beauty, like these, you can't like beauty, for example, right? Like what is beauty really? You know, when you see something that is beautiful, you know, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's self-fucking evident. Like now, what can you reduce that to the pixels, to the colors? Can you reconstruct it in a different? No, you can't. It is just, it is. It is. It is. So I would definitely, I I agree. I agree with that too. Like, I think there is objective beauty. I think there's objective reality. um, Like that is, and it's not, it is not subjected to uh, other people, uh, like people's whims. I think there are definitely preferences, but so so from a Christian perspective, I would say, okay, well that whatever is beautiful, whatever is true, whatever is like objective, like, you know, murder is bad. Okay. You know, most societies believe that, uh, it, like that is because it, it proceeds out of the mind of God or it proceed, in, in your case, it proceeds out of the divine or whatever the divine is. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, we, we could, <laughs> we could go for another hour and a half. Yeah. yeah. Just on, on that particular topic. But I think maybe this is a great place to wrap it up. We talked metaphysics. We talked theology. We talked Bitcoin. We talked uh, Austrian economics a little bit. <laughs> we talked we talked some practical stuff. Um, Stephen, this was this was really fascinating to me. I, and I hope hopefully people um, got a little bit of, more of a sense of of who you are, what where you're coming from. And, uh, and I thought it was fascinating right, be- right before we recorded this episode, you had some tweets <laughs> that, w- that were explaining how you viewed the nature of reality and, and metaphysically and, and things like that. And um, I have found that Bitcoiners tend to be very deep thinkers in a lot of different areas, not just, not just in the Bitcoin and economic space, but also the medical, metaphysical space, in the political space, in um, just how they view life and how it should be done. Yeah. And uh, I mean, really, in a lot of ways, Bitcoin <laughs> fixes a lot of things. And I've, I've actually seen a bunch of people who are like just going through life, just reevaluate their whole life once they experience Bitcoin. It, it's been very quite fascinating to me. Yeah, this is I mean, this is one of my favorite things. I think I tweeted this recently a little bit, something along these lines. But this is one of my favorite things about the Bitcoin community the more time has gone on, the more time I've spent in Bitcoin, the thing I appreciate more than anything else, I think I can say that pretty clearly, is that it is this wide variety of interests. It is this, this deep thinking, this, this even like comfortable with heterodoxy, comfortable with going against the grain, just really thinking about all of these different all of these different things. Uh, and it, it's just this core part of the Bitcoin community. I feel like I've been connected with so many fantastic thinkers across a variety of disciplines. And I, I value that terrific, like tremendously. Um, I've always been a bit of a generalist at heart. I, 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 I think there's a lot of value in that. Um, I think the research supports that too. There's some cool studies on it, but um, I, I've, the Bitcoin community has been my most invigorating intellectual connection as far as other people go, right, that I've had in my life. Um, there's just so many brilliant people that participate in it 
from different angles. And I just value that so highly. And I think one of the amazing things that Bitcoin has done is it has connected all of these people together that would not otherwise have been connected. And there's a wide range of opinions and views uh, across pretty much everything. And that grows by the day. Uh, Corey had tweeted something recently that uh, in his experience as CEO, you couldn't hire all of the people at Swan to work if it wasn't if it wasn't for bitcoin right like this particular group of talent and people whether that's because they're just you know very 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 qualified or um they wouldn't they just wouldn't be interested in doing this sort of thing if it wasn't for bitcoin or you just have this very diverse range of people that normally would not be working in the same thing i think all of those are angles but he tweeted yeah. about like you just couldn't get them you couldn't hire these people outside of the bitcoin uh, mission, right? And I, I think that's very true. It, it has brought um, just such a dynamic group of people together. And it's something that gives me, I think, a lot of faith and a lot of confidence that, you know, even regardless of the future, even regardless of like, I, I don't think this is going to happen at all, but even if Bitcoin were to fail, I feel that this group of people would build something like this right. group right. of people that was bought, brought together would go on to do something of enormous meaning and value. And I have confidence in that, that it's just uh, it's connected people that would otherwise not be connected. I, I totally agree. I think it's, it's created some kind of renaissance in, in human thinking. And I don't think like Bitcoin as it exists in, you know, the form that it does could possibly get, get killed, but like the UTX set set is still would still survive a nuclear blast, you know, and <clears throat> like the con the concept of it and the way that it is, it it can't be, you know, it, it could someday, you know, hundred years from now it could hard fork and, and be something different. But what it is in its essence, yeah, which is it it, it it the cat's out of the bag at this point and like the horse is out of the barn. There's no there's no going back from what this was. It blew the lid off modern finance, or I've even heard it called postmodern finance, which I loved. Um, it blew the lid off it. It, it is, it has invited an entire generation of people to question uh, the underpinnings of our entire financial and economic apparatus. And, you know, I'm grateful to Bitcoin because I would have never been interested in energy production. Uh, Bitcoin got me interested in energy. It's one of my favorite subjects now. I, I read about it constantly. It, it got me interested in a more detailed view of economics and Austrian economics. Like that wasn't my back, background. That wasn't where I came in from. And I have Bitcoin to thank for all of that. I mean, it, I'm enormously grateful. Yeah. Steven, this was an awesome talk. I, I wish I wish we could keep on going. Um, Thank you so much for, for sharing your views, uh, even though, you know, from from a worldview perspective, I feel like we're very divergent, but um, there are some overlap. The Venn diagram is is uh, more than I thought it was going to be. And I, I really benefited from talking with you. So thank you for sharing your opinion. And uh, if people want to get in touch with you, how can they yeah. how can they do? That? Yeah, just Stephen Lupka. Just type my name in on Twitter. I think I am the only Stephen Lupka on Twitter. So uh, you'll, awesome. you'll, you'll find me, um, reach out if you want to, if you want to contact me, just DM me there. My DMS are open and, uh, you know, I'm also at Swan. Thank you so much. Yeah. And we'll talk to you hopefully again soon. It was a pleasure, Adam. Really enjoyed the conversation. Take care.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Faith Over Fiat podcast. Your access to Bitcoiner testimonies of how faith influences their belief in the best money ever created.